Isabella Johnston, the founder of Employers for Change and the Intern Whisper podcast. Today's tip of the week continues our discussion about unconscious bias, which is also known as implicit bias. There are many types of unconscious bias. Some of the most common are biases in how individuals regard their own thought processes and reasoning abilities, such as when they focus on negative qualities of individuals that align with one's existing attitudes, like a confirmation of the bias and an affirmation. Other unconscious biases are directly related to how other people may look. These types of biases tend to rely on stereotypes and can result in discriminatory practices when people are not treated like individuals, like racism, ageism, and beauty. There are also unconscious biases that stereotype people based on how they behave, even though these types of biases aren't commonly talked about. Holding these biases can result in discriminating against people based on their personalities. So hi, today's guest is David Jenis. Did I say it right? Thank yeah, you. Yeah, pretty close. Oh, you'll educate me. So what is it? All right. It's Jennings. Jennings. David Jennings. He's the founder of System Hub and joining us from Melbourne, Australia. We have a big time gap here for our listeners. He has over 20 years of business experience. He's an entrepreneur and he's also had a journey that started in his early 20s when he was selling a company, Melbourne Cricket Ground, which I'm going to guess he's going to tell us more about that. That's a sports team into and turn that into other endeavors that allowed him to create systemology with a mission to free all business owners worldwide from the daily operations of running their business. So Dave, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me, Isabella. Yeah. And I'm going to give a little shout out for you. So how he got to the show is because he reached out on LinkedIn, the power of LinkedIn, and he knew something about me. He knew that I had listed that I was in Asana. He knew that I was the head of a company and I went, okay, he's done some research. That's helpful. And then he mentioned his book and part of what my porn is, is systems. I love anything that's about processes and systems. And he told me about his book and I said, okay, go ahead and send it to me. And I started reading it and it was amazing. And so we're going to talk about your book in a little bit, but I usually kick off the show by what are five words that describe you and why those five words? Mm, five words, I'd say driven, creative, process-driven, persistent, and fun. And the last one, I say fun. I'd like to think I'm fun, but I don't know. I Sometimes I think if I asked my team that, they'd, they'd say I'm not so fun. But yeah, a little bit of each one of those kind of makes me who I am. I think that a person that is creative has to be part fun. I don't think that you can do one without the other. So I'm going to say, yes, you are. And I also saw this picture of you wearing a tie and glasses, and it was looking like, you know, you were dressed up a little bit in a costume, a little bit because it was a book cover and it looks like you do have fun. So I agree. (laughs) Perfect. Yes. We recently did a photo shoot for our YouTube channel and I'm dressing up like Harry Potter and holding all of these weird props and things like that. And yeah, I, I sometimes look a little bit ridiculous. You know, that's part of being fun, right? So why driven? Why did you choose that word? Look, I think, you know, that kind of maybe relates a little bit to the idea of persistent. When I was growing up, our family, you know, money was always a challenge and things were tight. And I kind of decided early on, hey, that's a warning for me. And I want to kind of move away from that. And I became very driven kind of just trying to get myself out of that situation. And that's always been really kind of driving me into business and getting things done and making progress. Yeah. I think anybody that's an entrepreneur always needs to pay attention to the processes right from the beginning. And so I know I'm going to be asking questions built around entrepreneurship for sure and how vital processes are to being able to get stuff done. So creative and fun, they go together hand in hand, I think, but why'd you pick those? I feel like as a business owner, your business 
really is a creative endeavor because you're creating it the way that you would like it to be. And oftentimes the business owner will imagine something in their head of the way they think the business should be or the problem that they're going to solve or the client that they're going to serve. And then they go to work on it. And there's that real creative process and and business oftentimes reflects a lot about the business owner. So yeah, I, I think I love to bring that creativity out and showcase it in the the work that we do as business. Oftentimes it's really obvious in the marketing department, like that's a really obviously creative area, but really I think that creativity shows up in all parts of the business. Mm -hmm. I agree. Yep. And process driven, persistent. I bet those two go together. Yes. So the process driven, my dad was a systems engineer and he came up with this little system for my brother and I when I was quite young called the sheet where basically we could earn points throughout the week by doing different activities. It was like he was trying to gamify life. And at the end of the week, you would add up all of the points and then that would equal the pocket money that we would get for the week. So systems has kind of been, you know, embedded into my way of being since day dot. And it's just natural for me to think that way, which is sometimes it feels a little bit juxtaposition for many people because they think our oh, process removes creativity, whereas I kind of feel the opposite is true. I feel process allows you to get the things handled that need to be handled and done to a certain standard and consistently, and that creates the space, which then allows you to be more creative. I would agree. I definitely would agree because processes give you boundaries, right? And everybody needs those. And that way, you know how far you can stretch the boundaries. That's what I hear you saying. So that yeah, makes sense 100%. to me. So where did you get started? What was your career journey? You can start from college. Some people have started mm-hmm. as early as their paper route that they did when they yep. were in middle school and the industry and how you got to where you are now, because I'd like to know more about what cricket is and what is the Melbourne cricket ground? Well, I explained a little bit how I was kind of driven just from my upbringing. And then when I got to the end of my final year of schooling, everybody was deciding if they're going to go to university and what are they going to do afterwards. And I thought, look, I just want to get out there and get stuck into it. So a lot of my friends did go off and did uni. And then I just started a business and started looking for opportunities and thinking, you know, how can I make a name for myself? And I just read a book called The One Pay, sorry, The One Minute Millionaire. And oh, it it told it's a good book. It, and I t- it told the story of a guy called Paul Hartunian who sold the Brooklyn Bridge. And what happened was they were doing some renovations on the Brooklyn Bridge and he got his hands on a lot of the discarded wood, chopped it up into pieces and then wrote a press release and shared it around that Brooklyn, New Jersey man sells the Brooklyn Bridge for 1995. And I just read this story and I drove past the Melbourne Cricket Ground And for those of you who don't know, being Australian, we're a little bit sporting mad and we have a thing called Aussie rules football. And the MCG is effectively kind of like the church of sport here in Australia. So it's, it's hallowed ground. It's really precious. Now I'm driving past the MCG and there's a big gaping hole in the side of it because they were doing some renovations on the Melbourne cricket ground. And then it was like fireworks went off in my brain. And I thought, I'm going to get my hands on a bunch of the discarded wood and carpet. And basically, I replicated what Paul Hartunian did, but here in Australia. And I got the wood and chopped it up into little pieces. And uh, I'm not sure if, for those looking at the video, you'll see this. I'm holding up a piece of the wood. I, I cut it into a tiny little slither, stuck it to some certificate paper, and wrote the press release, Melbourne Man sells the MCG for $24.95. And then that was my first little endeavor into the entrepreneurial world. And I got mobbed by the media for a good number of months after that on TV and radio and in newspaper um, where they were telling this story about this 18 year old who had basically sold the MCG. So that was really kind of my, my first start into business. So I'm, I'm curious, how much money did you make from that? Because that sounds like genius, honestly. Yeah, look, it was 
hardly any money down because it was all discarded and I got it from the demolition store. And then most of the labor was just me and the family. And then look, I probably sold close to about a hundred grand's worth, which, you know, as a uh, young man, that was a, a great That's a start lot of money. in my career. And I still have a big pile of that wood sitting in my mum's garage. Mm, yeah. And there's going to be a place you can pass that on to your kids and they, there's going to be another generation that wants to have that that piece of history in their hand, right? For sure. Oh my gosh, that is that is brilliant. It's kind of like when people sold pet rocks, you know? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> who, who thought of that? Like just a rock inside of a box, but yet, you know, there's people that buy stuff like that too, mm-hmm. right? Yours has more history to it, so I think it's relevant. Yeah, it's it definitely. I love telling that story. It was the springboard. Like after that, I tried a bunch of different things. I opened a rock and roll clothing music store where we tried to model what Hot Topic did in the US and bring it to Australia. I was in the stock market education space. We tried importing products. I did the info product business, did lots of things until I finally landed in my last business, which was the digital agency. And that was kind of, I was in there for 10 years, had the business for 13 years, and that was really where a lot of my thinking around systems and processes and how to grow something without me really got formalized. Mm. So the name of the company then, I mean, it's it's also brilliant because it's about systems. I mean, it couldn't, there's no doubting what the book is about, honestly. So, but why did you add the OL systemology onto it? Yeah. So at the end of the digital agency, when I'd systemized it, took some time out, had the kind of birth of my child. I had some time out for a year and I was thinking, well, what am I going to do next? And I was thinking about how I remove myself and systems. And I thought, look, this whole idea of business process for small business is such an under-addressed area and poorly addressed. So I thought this is a problem I wanted to solve. And I was chatting with some colleagues. We're throwing around some names and we wanted something that was really brandable, something that kind of says what it does, but it's it's enough of a brand that can stick and we can have fun with like we license out the material to other business coaches and consultants and they're called systemologists so we have Mm. fun with that and so I just felt like it was yeah a very brandable term uh, and something that I thought hey this could be the book title it could be the business name it could really be just the central of everything and it it clicked and then I went on the next step which was to try and find out well who had the domain name and could I buy it off them and I ended up, once I secured it, I, I thought, yeah, this is, I'm going all in on this brand. Yeah, I like it quite a, quite a bit. So what is, where'd you go to school then? Did you go to college? Didn't end up going to college. I went to a school called Melbourne High School and it was a select entry school. And I like was surrounded by the best of the best in Melbourne. They travel from all over Melbourne to go to this particular school and everybody got incredibly high like ATAR scores when you get to the end like basically the scoring and they're all going off to the prestigious universities and there's a little bit of pressure to do that but I kind of that's when I started zigging when others were zagging Mm, and I thought that's smart though honestly I just do you think college is meant for everybody I don't and I was an educator so I don't yeah definitely not for everybody. For some people, it makes perfect sense. And for others, they'll choose a different path. There's, you know, from a business owner perspective, there's plenty of business owners really that just go out and learn by the school of hard knocks, like Mm -hmm. starting a real world bricks and mortar business, the rock and roll clothing music store and having staff and the expense of, you know, running the store and, you know, the lease that we had and inventory. And like, I just learned so much more in the rag trade than I could have ever imagined learning doing a university course. Cause some of those lessons you just can't learn without Mm-mm. doing. No, you really can't. And I know that you mentioned that, but I always find it interesting. I live vicariously through people in other countries and we may not always know like, well, what is that like over there? I've had 
quite a few people that I've worked with from other countries and not everybody goes to school. And like I said, and I don't think that, I don't think people will be going to college in the future either, except unless you're getting a license or some type of a certificate specific, like, you know, doctors, lawyers, things like that. I think that the route that you did was very good because you made a lot of money and then you also didn't spend money on your education. So I think you're brilliant, honestly, the way you chose. So what do you, thing, tell us about I'll, the book more. Yeah. One thing I'll just mention on that also, like I'm naturally curious, a self-starter and a self-learner. So while I might not have gone to traditional education, I still educated myself. Oh, yeah. Me. Yeah. Uh, and like that, all of that has formed a, a solid foundation for the businesses that we've grown and and yeah, where systemology is today. So, I mean, it all started with the book. I left what happened with the digital agency. I took some time off when my family were pregnant and had a, a CEO at the time. She ended up running that business for three years because I found after I took a brace with the kids that I kind of lost the passion for the digital agency. So I didn't want to step back into it. And Melissa started running that and she ran it quite well for a few years until she's actually US born, but was living in Australia and she had to fly home for some family reasons. And then we ended up selling the digital agency at that point because I didn't want to step back into it. And that then all of those lessons, I kind of rolled up into systemology and the path that I took to remove myself out of the operations. And I was, you know, inspired by books like The E-Myth by Michael E. Gerber and Traction by Gino Wickman. And I thought, you know, they all talk about systems and processes and they get you excited and pumped up about them, but they don't really tell you the how to. So systemology, I wanted it to be effectively like the implementation guide or the how-to guide for the E-Myth. How do you identify your critical systems? How do you extract what is currently happening, best practice. And my methodology, it's different from other process improvement methodologies like Lean and Six Sigma, which focus heavily on, will you already have a process and you're looking to improve it? Whereas systemology is actually the step before. You haven't yet really codified what your way is. And as a small business, you haven't made it consistent so systemology is about finding, well, here's how we do things. Let's bring everybody up to that standard because for a lot of business owners, that creates an incredible win just by getting a level of consistency where most small businesses, they're only consistent if the business owner is doing the work. And, mm -hmm. and that's the biggest challenge that I try and address with the book. Mm -hmm. So <clears throat> you mentioned Michael Gerber. I'm a big fan of E-Myth also. E-Myth revisited all of the myths that he has written, E-Myths. Super, super good book. And also the other book too. You know, you mentioned both of those authors. I, I know them. And when you were talking about that in your book, you also addressed the four stages of system, business systemology. And you broke it down into survival stationary, scalable, and saleable. And I like that type of a takeoff of the Maslow's theory, honestly, of yes. how you could actually visualize what that would look like in the growth of your company. So you want to talk about that a little bit more too, because I, I truly appreciate the value that you related it to something that people can see easily. Yeah. I think to figure out what your next step is when it comes to systemizing your business, you have to figure out where you are and where you want to get to. So this idea of, you know, the four stages of business systemization is to go, oh, I'm here and I want yeah. to get there. And also at each stage, what you have to focus on to move through to the next level is slightly different. And you can't jump from level one survival and go straight to saleable. You kind of have to move through the stages. So the first stage is survival. And that's really where most business owners start. They are very much the bottleneck in the business that oftentimes they don't even realize they're the bottleneck. A lot of things just depend on them. If they've got a small team around them, they don't really like process. They kind of make things up as they go. Like everything's bespoke for every customer that's coming through. And to move through to the next stage up, which is what I call stationary, the business owner at least has recognized that they are that bottleneck. And at this point, Nine times out of 10, you might have a way of doing things, but it's actually trapped. 
inside the heads of the team members. Mm-hmm. So that's why you're stationary at that point, because if something happens to them, if they can't show up to work, whether that's, you know, Sally in accounts who issues out the invoice and if she's off sick, no invoices get issued out. Or if it's the business owner who handles all of the incoming inquiries and leads, and if they're not there, we're not making a sale. So it's kind of like you have a way, but you're stuck because it's stuck in the heads of those members. And that's what that stationary phase is about. Once you kind of move up to the next level, which is scalable, scalable is where you have some systems and processes, but it's very patchy and Mm. maybe you've got some systems in your finance department, but you've got no systems in your marketing department. And oftentimes it has to do with where certain strengths of particular team members are. And oftentimes with the business owner, you might become very heavily reliant on the business owner. And that's why it's not documented or it's hard to get it out of their head. So that scalable stage everything's a little bit patchy, not only the documentation, but the tools that you're using. It's a bit clunky. It feels a little bit like it's a Frankenstein machine that's put together. And probably the biggest telltale sign is you constantly need to remind your team to follow process. And that's the biggest distinction between that and the top level, that that saleable stage, which is when you're in saleable, um, and, and the goal isn't necessarily to sell, but rather to build a business that someone would want to buy because those businesses run more efficiently and there's a way of doing things. But you can tell when you're in that top stage when people say, this is how we do things here. And new team members come on board and the old team members teach them and show them what's done. And almost like from day dot, the person is indoctrinated that we have a way of doing things and we're process driven. And this is how we do things here. And, and that level, you don't have to remind your team at that point. like Because at the start, those first few stages, it's a slog to build a systems culture. But yeah. once you've built a systems culture, really, I mean, it's a slog to change any form of culture. Mm-hmm. But once you get on the other side of that, that's that's when you reap the biggest rewards from going through these stages. Mm. So I feel like where I am is I'm not unsaleable because I, even though I'm a process person, I'm a single founder. So I'm really looking forward to like what obviously advice you would have to say. So I'm having to wear many hats like an E-Myth had talked about. And so sometimes I wear the sales hat and sometimes I wear the investment hat and sometimes I'm wearing, okay, I, I, I'm an HR product. I have to go and do these things, you know, recruit and interview and assess and be able to send people out to employers. I've got processes, but man, it is mm. just, it is so hard to be able to just allocate yeah. enough time for all of that when you're a sole founder and you don't have somebody yeah. else to share that with. So I'm interested into what suggestions do you have for somebody that would be like myself? Mm. It's good that we mentioned this because the when I first wrote Systemology, I wrote it for the business owner that has a small team around them. Mm-hmm. So some of the steps that I mentioned there in the book really only work if you've got a small team. Mm-hmm. Now, that doesn't mean Systemology can't work for you if you're solo, but it means that you might have to make some adjustments. So for example, step number two talks about, well, after you've identified the core systems, think about who on your team knows how to do that particular task. Mm-hmm. And then step number three is we extract it out of their head and maybe we introduce you know, a documenter or a systems champion to kind of make that process easier. But when it's just you and it's just the business owner, you, you don't get that benefit. And not only that, by over-documenting something early on when it's just you, you don't really get much leverage from that because you're still the one actually following it. So there's this really fine line that you have to tread between over-documentation and enough documentation. So you'd probably lean more to you know some checklists and more high-level process yep. to start with. And Probably the first stepping stone, because I do quite a bit of work with coaches and consultants with our systemologists, because I try and help them grow their business and I want them to be the best example of what they teach. So we try and give them a pathway to help grow beyond just being the consultant. And I think one of the first 
hires that really helps is some sort of virtual assistant, potentially, you know, maybe even out of an emerging economy where you get really good bang for your buck. And you start off by recording yourself doing parts of your day-to-day tasks and you carve off, it's a little bit counterintuitive, but you actually want to carve off all the easiest stuff first. So it's administrative tasks, it's booking calendar appointments, it's chasing up invoices, it's anything where you're not not adding any unique magic Mm -hmm. and you, you slowly start carving off some of those tasks and delegating to an assistant. They might start off by watching five videos of you doing this task. Here's how I schedule this calendar appointment or here's how I run my podcast. And they'll you get them to watch the videos and then you say, right, now I want you to create a, a process based on what you watch. And then at the end, you can have a discussion as to whether or not they feel comfortable to take it over. So one story I'll relate is one of our systemologists, Dan Lenny. He's a videographer and he coaches videographers to build their videography business. And when he started in that coaching business, again, it was just him. He went through that process that I was talking about. One of his marketing strategies was to run a podcast. So he was booking the podcast, scheduling the podcast, running the podcast, editing, uploading it into iTunes, syndicating it across LinkedIn and other social media. And he worked, that was the first thing that he worked with his VA to work on. She she followed him, mirrored him. He recorded a bunch of videos. First off though, he, he it took about three to six months to record himself doing all of these things, saved it in a Google Drive folder and just collected this big collection. Then he hired the VA and said, here's a bunch of videos that I've recorded on the tasks that I'm doing. And I want you to work with me to create the process around that and start to take off pieces. So it sounds like you're actually quite close because you you like process and you've got some process. Probably that next step for you is really thinking about How do you then, you know, in a cost-effective manner, get another team member on to start carving out some of those tasks, which then creates space for you to work on higher value tasks? Mm, Yeah, for sure. Some of that is related to raising money for me, raising investment money. And so I'm always stuck between, okay, I can either fundraise or I can focus on sales. If I focus on sales, then you know the money will come in. It's just a matter of making sure that I stay very focused. So my advisor had said, focus is the only word you pay attention to. The next word is execute. So it sounds like you're telling me yeah. this thing though. Yeah. Honestly, I, I think like you're- what we try and do is we we identify the critical things in your business that must happen. So you might go, it's fundraising, or you might say it's sales. So let's say you you picked one or the other to start with, because you have to start somewhere. Mm-hmm. Then you try and really drill into, well, what are the activities in that that are essential? And then which parts of those might we create a system? So we look for essential, repeatable, and delegatable. Yeah. And if we can identify those, you might go, well, fundraising, one of the tasks is I have to build a list of potential fundraising candidates. And they meet this and this and this and this criteria. And you might create the system there, which potentially could then get outsourced or you get a VA to do who might then take over the job of building that list. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I do a lot of those things. And actually, it's interns that help me do it, to be honest. So that's where yeah. a lot of my process is. And we use it inside of Asana. And we build out what does that look like? to you know automate the show automate our onboarding processes and so we've done quite a bit of creating the processes now yeah. it's about making sure it's connected to the right pieces that you know are in there and if you don't have a team that's where interns have been everything has been created by interns with me so i'm very thankful for that labor that has come in and helped support to to grow honestly Interns are great. We do something similar in our marketing department and we get some interns in that space. Uh, And it kind of rings true something Michael Gerber had said to me, and and he talks about this line quite publicly, that every business is a school. Yeah. And when you think about it, that's where 
systems and processes step in because effectively they are the curriculum and the training for the students, which, you know, is the new employee. So this mm-hmm. whole idea of interns and systems and processes and building business are really closely entwined. And if you think about business as a school, then I think that's a great model of, of how to view business. Mm-hmm. I agree with you. Yeah. So I know that you used quite a few quotes in your book, but do you have a quite a favorite quote that you like to live by? Is it, did you embed those into your book also? Because I would have. Yeah. Yeah. Look, I used to be a bit of a self-development junkie. I loved my Jim Rohn and Zig Ziglar and Tony Robbins and some of the classics there. So I actually had a wall full of quotes. I remember when I was a a teenager, but one always that stuck out with me was from Jim Rohn, who I believe was a mentor to Tony Robbins, who said, work harder on yourself than you do on your job. And whatever the job is, like if it's the business or whatever, it's just that idea of working hard on yourself and giving it all you've got. So work harder on yourself than you do on your job. Mm. So what is a hard lesson that you learned that actually changed your life also? I think early on, something happened in my brain. Might've been, I I used to do a thing called, and I still do, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. And that was always about putting yourself in uncomfortable positions and, and being comfortable in uncomfortable positions. So that was a hard lesson. And I try and seek that out where even things like public speaking, like back in the day, you know, when you first do public speaking, and even to this day, it's still challenging and you get a bit of the nerves before speaking in front of a big audience. But I somehow wired my brain to think that those uncomfortable situations there was some sort of pleasure tied to that. And I'm, you know, like I'm doing something that other people wouldn't do. Um, Mm -hmm. And and really that, that hard lesson of getting comfortable in uncomfortable situations and even seeking them out has really served me well. Mm -hmm. I think that goes back to what we're talking about is creating systems. People think that they want to be spontaneous, but they really they really desire the the boundaries that are around them so that they know where they can push and where they can pull. But they also, they go, I don't like change, but yet everything is changing, right? And it's, I don't like systems, but yet that's what keeps you safe. Yes. And everything really is a system. Some things you're consciously aware of, some things just operate on a subconscious level. But the way that you might prepare your toast in the morning or like when I think of routine, routine is like a system that Mm -hmm. you've kind of embedded and it's become subconscious. Now, when I think about systems and processes, a lot of what I'm talking about is just bringing them up to awareness level so that you can go to work on them and so that you can identify the most important processes and document that out and clearly articulate it. And then you can follow that process and do that process until the point at which it becomes second nature. And then that's the new habit. So I definitely feel like systems and process, even if someone thinks, oh, I'm not a systems and processes person, you kind of are because everything is a system. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You you still get up in the morning, right? You still have to go and and you know, decide, okay, yes, I'm going to take a shower or no, you're not, but you're still going to the bathroom for some reason. And then you still are getting ready and you're still going out the door, whether it's to work or whatever, you're still there. There is a process that is always followed. Yes. I yeah. totally agree. Totally agree. So what are you most grateful for? I'm most grateful for family. And I mean, I work hard and I really love what I do. And I try and, you know, burn the candle at both ends for that and and have been driven as I talked about what I'm, and I led with family first there and why I'm Mm -hmm. grateful for that is because I think that's something that I'm still working on and, and trying to prioritize that. And like, it's easy in business to kind of, because I love what I do to be a workaholic and slip into that groove. So I'm constantly kind of reminding myself that I'm grateful for family and it needs to be a top focus. 
Mm -hmm. I think that's wise that you recognize that also, because they give you the permission to pursue something that you love also, because it can, it can go in the other direction, right? It can take you off course and they may be going, well, we don't see him that much. He's, he's providing for us, but we don't see him. What they want is you. Yeah. Yeah. And my wife, she, she's great at being the reminder for me on that. That's good. You always need a person that's going to be honest with you and tell you the truth, tell you what you need to hear, not what you want to hear. Yep, for sure. So who in your life has had the biggest impact? I know you mentioned the the two gentlemen, Jim Rohn and Tony Robbins, but do you know them? Have you met them? I met Tony Robbins. I have been to a couple of his events, Unleash the Power Within and Date with Destiny, and obviously consumed a lot of his material. And I think that kind of hit me at a real pivotal point. Like that was in my teenage years, very impressionable. And I think that's probably why I'd say had one of the he he had one of the biggest impacts. And it wasn't just his message, but it was the right time at the right place to hear the message. Mm-hmm. And what was the message? Do you remember it? Really just like personal totally power. Yeah. Like he's got a lot of messages, but basically taking ownership and really taking responsibility for your life and what you've got in it and that you have control over it and you can do something about it. Yeah. I worked with somebody before who had said, and I thought this was a brilliant statement, that he really liked it when there was some kind of a you know, mess up at the company or whatever. And they were looking for somebody that would, you know, own it. And he said, I will, because it meant that he could go in and change it and make it better. Even if yeah, he wasn't the person that. that was responsible, he's going, no, I'm just going to go ahead and say, hey, I'll take it. And, you know, let me make this a better situation for everybody, for the customers, people. And yeah. I reckon you can apply that to all areas of life. Like that's the the mindset that I approach everything with, regardless of what goes on in my life, it's always my fault. And I can, that gives me a chance to take control of it. Even if it's something that seemingly from the outside looks, looking in, it looks like that uh, that person did that to you or whatever. If it's external of me, I don't really have control over it, but I still influenced if I chatted with that person or I was in the, you know, I chose to be at that place at that time. So I, I'm trying to look for the areas that I do have control over. So I try and take that extreme ownership. I think Jocko talks about it as extreme ownership. Mm, that's good stuff there too. So what do you want to be remembered for? I think being a good dad, going back to that family thing that we talked about, from, from that perspective and from business perspective, just helping to solve the problems of small business owners. Like I, I enjoy being helpful and there's some things that I've been able to focus on that I've gotten really good at. So just being helpful for small business owners is, is probably from a work side of things, how I'd like to be thought of. That's a good place for us to stop and acknowledge our sponsor, Transcend Network, and we'll be right back. Transcend Network helps early stage startup founders find product market fit through weekly experiments, receive fundraising support, and build a global founder investor network for edtech and the future of work technologies. The Intern Whisperer is affiliated with Employers for Change, and we thank Transcend Network for being a sponsor of our show. And we're back to the second part of our show where we talk about the future of jobs and industries and what is 2030 going to look like. So this is all opinion, Dave. You don't have to worry about it. What do you think 2030 is going to look like? There's no right or wrong answer. Mm. I think obviously a lot is changing and we see it with AI and you know Apple's just released their Apple Vision Pro. So there's going to be a lot of change. Already COVID accelerated a lot of the change with people working with remote and the types of things that they're working on. So I don't exactly know what it is going to look like, but I know there are going to be a lot more robots doing some of the menial tasks and that just like we talked about with systems and processes, with systems and processes, it creates space 
for you to be more creative. So I think that AI will create space for humans to do some of their best work because we're kind of taking some of the menial tasks off and some of those jobs will just disappear and then that brain power will get reallocated. You know, I ask this question of people so many times and I can tell you I get it's either the answer that you're giving that it's going to make our lives easier or it's that people are afraid of, you know, yeah, it could take something away. So I guess it depends on maybe how somebody looks at the glass. Is it half full or half empty, right? And what I think that it's not just AI, we we have faster workflows and automations and that makes it so that yes, just with my phone, I can touch it and send an invoice out to somebody. That would be great. I think that there's this place where people are thinking again, not only is it going to take their job away, but it raises some problems down the road. Like, well, and, and we'll talk about this a little bit further, you know, about the ethics of some of what we're doing here. So I look forward to that. There's a couple questions I'll throw in ahead before we get to that ethics, because it's always interesting here. So systems are good. Those are the automations that we're currently experiencing, and we're seeing that it can make things better. But what do you think about remote work, blended? What is it like over there mm-hmm. on your side of the world? I mean, did is everybody more remote here? There's been a movement to bring people back into the workplace, back into offices. Mm. So what's it like in your side of the world? I think it's similar. Everybody went to work from home through COVID. A lot of people got really comfortable with that. And now that they're being asked to come back into the office, businesses are finding that a challenge and some people are looking for blended options. For us at Systemology, We were already remote and have been for a good number of years, and we built a virtual team around the world. So oftentimes we look for the best talent at the best rate, wherever they can be. So for us, nothing really changed. We didn't really miss a beat, but I know, yeah, there are a lot of businesses that are now kind of thinking, well, what happens and where are people more productive? And they're more productive back in the office, some people feel, so we need to get them back in the office. So yeah, I, I, th- I think you can't wind back the clock on what COVID did and how it opened people's eyes. Like I feel like this work from home for me has been the best kept secret for a long time. And I think a lot of people now are like, oh, wow, this is just a different way to think about work. And as long as you've got a driven person who can move things along if they're not sitting right next to someone and there are you know different ways that you can make yourself more productive if you get that right i actually think working from home at least for me personally works better but i think for some people they also like to go into the office so maybe it's a case of depends on the individual Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. For me, I I need the, and I use the word need specifically, the ability to be around other people. I like the energy that comes off of it. I like being able to have more spontaneous conversations. I find that really hard to do in a remote environment because I have to go through the effort of connecting with somebody. It's got to be on a camera. So, you know, I can make it more experiential. I think that humans are made for relationship. I not think I absolutely believe we are. And with that, it means that there are times when we should be coming together because we are made for relationship. So I don't think that you have to be in the office every single day, but I do feel that there's a a better, a richer environment of being human with other humans when you can see each other, you can touch each other, like, you know, hugs and stuff yeah. like that and say, it's really nice to to be able to connect with people. I work with so many people remote. I, I feel like I know them as well as if I saw them in person, but I also feel like there's always something missing. We just had our first annual retreat uh, out in the Philippines and We flew everybody in and there are team members that I've worked with for years that I've never met in person. And yeah, there's definitely something that happens when you meet someone in person and you're able to share the space outside of work. 
right. the space when you eat together or when you yeah. hang out in the evening together or you share a drink or whatever it might be that you can't really replicate remote. So yeah. I, I think there's a bit of both. Yeah. Even with the ability to have holograms and virtual reality and and if you've watched any Avatar movies, you know that there's, yeah, well, yeah, you can have virtual reality, but I also sit here and go, I don't want my body lying in what is essentially a coffin in my mind. So I'm going, while my my existence is out doing something else, and I go, no, I'd rather do that in real life. So there's these places of all of these types of technology that we can have that I go, I don't know, do I really want that? You know, because I I do like being a person that is experiencing something for real, not necessarily in a an augmented type of a environment. So what are your thoughts about that AR, VR? What do you think? Yeah, I am interested to have a, a great experience with it. I, I haven't yet had an experience where I've thought I'd want to hang out here. And maybe yeah. that will happen. You know, you think of something like the Matrix where you fully hook into this immersive experience and maybe that will change my mind but at the moment using oculus or some sort of vr headset just doesn't quite do it for me i haven't tried the new apple ones on and maybe it's a hybrid approach maybe it's the augmented reality i think it's definitely coming for me it hasn't quite clicked it'd be interesting to see what happens once it does Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now I work out of a co-working space. You didn't know this, and it's filled with 3D simulation companies, and I have one of those too. That's down there, and so we often there we're surrounded by Oculus. We're surrounded by everything. There's a guy that works out every morning with his Oculus headset. So it is. I can't say we live and breathe it, but we're we're definitely drinking the Kool-Aid is the point. So mm. I, I'm always around whatever the latest stuff is that's within our power. And we do these things called game jams where you can go and experience things at a different level that's more of like military grade, you know, super high grade mm. quality of those experiences. And they're pretty cool, but I still sit here and go, no, I don't think anything replaces being human. But, yeah. you know, We'll have to wait and see, you know, for that. What are your thoughts about robots? Because, you know, they bring you, bring people food mm. now and they do all kinds of stuff. Yeah, we went, we just got back from a two-week vacation in Japan. And oh. on the last day, we went to a robot cafe where we were <laughs> served by robots shown to our table and we'd order on an iPad and the food would come out on a robot and the kids loved it because... The robot would dance to Gangnam style and um, <laughs> like it was pretty fun to see. And I can see more and more the introduction of robots here in Australia. Our, our, like our wage costs when you're running a, a business are quite high. So I see it in the supermarkets now, more self-checkout options where you're scanning your own and bagging your own product and seeing more and more of that automation and robots take over some of those things because obviously the business invests in it once and it continues to do the job as opposed to having to pay someone a wage forever and a day. And yeah. at some point it becomes more cost-effective. So I don't think you can fight it. It's it's obviously going to happen because businesses will look for the most efficient way to do certain tasks because their mandate is to become a profitable business. And if, if that helps them on that journey, they'll they'll take it. So mm -hmm. uh, again, I'm, maybe it goes back to that, what does the future 2030 look like? I don't see any other option than to embrace. Like mm -hmm. you can't, this is happening. So you're going to sit here and say, no, I don't want this. I don't want this. I don't want this. I don't want this. It It's happening. So you're yeah. better off embracing it. Yeah. Yeah. Don't be afraid of sit here and go, okay, I'm going to go for the ride with it for sure. So what about the ethical dilemmas that you can come and see out of all of this? What are your thoughts? I think the thing I'm thinking more and more about is just people pretending to be something potentially that they're not, whether that's going for an interview or a recruitment process and using chat GPT to present 
at a higher standard than they might actually be able to operate at. Or, you know, the more nefarious and the scams and things that we see pop up with people using AI and, you know, replicating voice and video and all of this, you know, new generation AI that that is able to replicate someone's voice and make it sound like someone Mm -hmm. or deep fake type videos. Like I see just a lot in that space. And I have been thinking about it recently through the lens of as a parent and thinking about, you know, next level bullying and what that's going to look like when kids are, you know, leaving a voicemail on someone else's phone, using one of these voice generators that makes them look like they said something when they did, didn't say something, or, I mean, social media already has, you know, an element of that bullying in it. And I just feel like in the wrong hands, this is just going to, to take it to a whole new level. Yeah. It's very dangerous for sure. That's where I was recommending. You might want to watch black mirror. Yeah. Yes. Some of the yeah. new episodes are out are exactly like what you're describing and not about the bullying, but well, maybe a little bit too. That's there, but the generative AI for sure. Yeah. yeah. Check that one out. So best mentoring advice that you want to share with our listeners. I think, and I'm biased, but I think the best thing that you can do is start a business if you're that way inclined, because you just learn so much about yourself. You learn so much about people, about the world, the way that things operate, and you get that real hands-on experience. So I feel that would be the best piece of advice I could give anyone is start a business. I think so too. The thing is, is that they don't teach us that in school when we go to school about how to think like an entrepreneur or even thinking like a scientist. I mean, you know, that's essentially what an entrepreneur is. You go, I see a problem. How can I fix that problem? That would be super helpful. And I think that would be something that would be very beneficial is to know how to, how to have systems inside of there. So I, I value that very much. Now, how can our listeners contact you? Because we share this on our contact card and in the description of the show too. Look, if you're interested in anything that I talked about with regards to systems, I just head over to Amazon, get a copy of the book Systemology. If you're listening to this, you're probably an audio person. So grab the Audible, that's also available. And then if you want to go a little bit deeper down the rabbit hole, uh, systemology.com. And there's links from there to my YouTube channel, to some of my different social media channels. We have a podcast, although it's been on a little bit of a hiatus now for a little while, but at some point we'll reactivate that as well. And all of that's through systemology.com. That is perfect. Well, I really want to thank you for being a guest on the show. And I'm going to be sharing this book, obviously, in my social feed. I have some I don't know how many followers you have on your LinkedIn. I'm at about 8,500 right now. And when I post something out there, I know that people have really paid attention to it. So I hope people see you because I'm going to be writing about this episode, writing about your book, because I think it's something that everybody should read. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you so much for that. And I'll do our best to share that round as well. Yeah. Thank you. Well, Just so our listeners know, you can look for this show to air on the 25th of July. So they'll be hearing about it. That's a little ways out. I know when they hear it, but we will also supply a cover of the book so they know what to look for on Amazon or wherever they purchase their books. There it is. Thank you. Perfect. All right. Well, thanks, Dave. Perfect. Thank you. So we want to thank our sponsor, Cat5 Studios, and thank you to our production team, producer and editor, Leanna Blair, and music by Sophie Lloyd. Be sure to visit Employers for Change at www.e4c.tech to learn how you can create real diversity and inclusive culture while scaling your people for the future of work. Thank you for supporting The Intern Whisperer by subscribing to us on Podbean, our Employers for Change YouTube channel, or stream from your favorite podcast channel. And be sure to visit Employers for Change, who is our sponsor.